Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Scientists believe that they have discovered the home of one of humanity's early ancestors. When you analyze it, it points to the tree converging about 200,000 years ago in northern Botswana. And can the idea of digital transformation help prevent organizations and companies from going extinct? Companies who adopt these technologies successfully will survive and thrive, and those who don't will be acquired by those who do. Plus, I head to Britain's Natural History Museum to learn about why you are more likely to see male birds and mammals versus female ones in their collection. might also be a deliberate selection for the pretty males in birds. And in mammals, it might be that we're choosing to get the fiercest and the ones with the biggest and prettiest horns. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. First up, an intriguing story of human evolution has just been revealed. Scientists have discovered where one of the ancestors of everyone alive today lived, and it's located in modern-day Botswana in Africa. A group of researchers from the Garvin Institute in Sydney, Australia, studied a special type of DNA that can be found in every human cell called mitogenomes. The DNA can be traced back to an early Homo sapien woman nicknamed Mitochondrial Eve. The researchers believe that her history goes back to a former wetland in Botswana 200,000 years ago. Jeff Carr is the Economist Technology and Science Editor, and he joins me in the studio. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ken. Jeff, Botswana has been a place of interest in the study of humanity's origins for a long time. Why is that? Well, uh, in the north of Botswana, um, there is a salt pan, uh, former lake bed called Makadikadi. And uh, although there are no uh, actual human remains from that area, um, there are a lot of stone tools there, which suggests that um, people of one sort or another lived there. And what's Makadikadi like? Makadikadi, it's dry, it's flat, it's desolate, actually, although uh, during the rainy season, you uh, you get plant growth there and uh, animals do come in. But most of the year, it's an arid and rather uninviting place. Now, the scientists believe that mitochondrial Eve comes from there. How did they reach that finding? So they arrived at it through mitochondria, as the name suggests. Um, most of our DNA is in the cell nucleus, but uh, there are structures in uh, cells of all animals and plants which are called mitochondria, and they are the cell's power packs. And they are uh, the descendants of symbiotic bacteria that uh, linked up with our cells about a billion years ago. And that means they have their own DNA. It's separate from the nuclear DNA. Uh, and it's passed from mother to offspring in the egg uh, and uh, lives in the, the cells of the adult. But because it doesn't take part in sexual reproduction, it's passed on identically through the generations, except occasionally you get mutations in it. So mitochondrial Eve was not a real person, what she was, but this is a synthetic – how do you describe it? Mitochondrial Eve is 
a concept. This is an individual who must have existed because all of our mitochondria have to have a common ancestor. And back in the 1980s, a man called Alan Wilson uh, in the University of California, Berkeley, um, realized that you might be able to use the DNA of mitochondria to track back where people came from. And he produced a tree of uh, mitochondrial DNA by looking at the mutations and looking, if you look at the mutations and match them up, you can see what order they happened in. And you can make a tree which converges down to uh, origin. And what he discovered was that uh, for people outside Africa, this tree converged into Africa. And of course, the people already in Africa, their tree was in Africa as well. So it all converged down and it was really the essential proof that Homo sapiens is an African species. Now, they also spread out from that area. Yes, indeed. Everybody who is not an African or or the recent descendant of an African can trace their ancestry back to one or two small groups of people who left Africa, as I say, about 60,000 years ago. And what's the implication of leaving? Clearly, their DNA now was spread with other different forms of humanoids. So there were um, human beings, not Homo sapiens, in Asia um, before they arrived. Um, And there were by then several species because the previous emigrants from Africa, Homo erectus, had started to speciate. Um, But they were sufficiently closely related that uh, the migrants, or rather the descendants of the migrants, could interbreed with them. And in particular interbred with Neanderthals in Europe um, and with a group called the Denisovans that have only recently been discovered uh, in Asia. And you can see the DNA, uh, you can see Neanderthal DNA in uh, European genomes and Denisovan DNA in Asians. Now, regarding the new research, not all scientists have been accepting of it. Why are they skeptical? Uh, It's a long time ago is is the short answer. And the signal gets weaker and weaker as you go backwards. And there's certainly room for skepticism here. The reason that I find the story plausible is there are two separate lines of evidence. It's not just the mitochondrial evidence, which has been refined. This evidence includes um, newly collected uh, mitochondrial sequences from people living in southern Africa. And it looks as though when you analyze it, it points to the tree converging about 200,000 years ago in northern Botswana. However, if that was the only evidence, then you might regard it as rather weak. But it also suggests that uh, the people who were in this uh, tree lived in the same place for quite a long time, and then a group of them moved to the southwest of uh, where they were living, and then there was another period of time, and a group of them moved to the northeast. That matches a second line of research, which these people are in. One of them is a paleoclimatologist, and he built a model of the uh, climate in that area in the relevant period and showed that there were two periods, uh, one 130,000 and one 110,000 years ago, when the climate changed to allow green corridors to emerge from this wetland through the surrounding desert which matches with the mitochondrial data. And that's what uh, makes the story more plausible. Okay, so much for mitochondrial Eve. Jeff, where is Adam? Well, we don't know the answer to that yet, but uh, we might be able to pull a similar track off because there is also a piece of DNA which passes down the male line. This is part of the uh, Y chromosome, which is only found in men. There are um, exceptions where the gene that makes you male is switched off in it, and you say you have some women with chromosomes, but it's unusual. However, it passes from father to son, and it doesn't recombine in sex. So in that sense, it's like the mitochondrial DNA. And uh, you can trace that also back to Africa in a very similar way. 
we're in Africa is not so clear. So maybe at some point, somebody smart will, uh, will track that down. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about the origins of humanity, you can read our article about it in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, across the world, companies are embarking on digital transformation projects to keep up with the latest developments in technology. The stakes are huge. The corporate landscape is littered with firms who fail to adapt. Tom Siebel is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and he's had a front row seat to watch the action. He founded the enterprise software company Siebel Systems and is now the founder and CEO of C3AI, an artificial intelligence platform. Tom argues that four new technologies, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, big data, and the Internet of Things will wipe out big companies if they can't keep up. He's the author of a recent book on the subject called Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction. And he joined me in the studio to talk about it. I began by asking him what he means by digital transformation. Digital transformation is a term that is being increasingly used by CEOs and chairmen of corporations as something that's a mandate. And I kept hearing this term in the last 10 years in boardrooms in Shanghai, in Rome, and Paris, London, New York. And candidly, I couldn't figure out what people were talking about. I was thinking, you know, digital transformation as opposed to what? Analog transformation? And so I, you know, I probed over a period of about eight years and I found very little in common in terms of people using the term. They knew it was important, but they didn't know quite what it was. So the book is an attempt to do just that, to explain what I think people mean. And I think what digital transformation is all about is about the application of a new step function in information technology that's very important in the 21st century. And this step function includes the technology vectors of elastic cloud computing, big data, the Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence. So what companies are getting it right? And the subtitle of your book has the term mass extinction. What companies are not getting it right? A thesis of the book is that we are going through a mass extinction event in the corporate world in the first part of the 21st century. In fact, since 2000, 52% of the Fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the list. They're just gone. But presumably by acquisitions. Acquisition, merger, bankruptcy, or they've just fallen apart. You know, like Sears Roebuck, Kodak, Toys R Us. I mean, they're gone or soon to be gone, but definitely off the list. And so this is a rate of attrition unlike that in the history of capitalism. So we have this mass extinction event. At the same time, this is being accompanied by a re-speciation event where we have companies with new DNA, companies like Amazon, companies like uh, Airbnb, where they're applying these new technologies. Let's think about Amazon. Elastic cloud computing, AI, and IoT focused at retailing. Meanwhile, in the United States, last year, 8,000 retailers go out of business. You know, digital transformation, I believe, is about the application of these technologies to change the way products are designed, products are manufactured, products and services are delivered, 
customers are served, and businesses are managed. So who do you want to read this book? The old dinosaurs so that they can live another day or the young, febrile gazelles and startups who want to crush them? I think the companies that are really best positioned to take advantage of what's going on in digital transformation are the large juggernauts who have the data. I mean, data is the fuel of artificial intelligence. And so the companies that have large sets of customer data, historical customer data, market data, they can use these data in very powerful ways. And so we see leaders in the field like Royal Dutch Shell, Anel in Rome, Bank of America in New York. They are really seizing this opportunity to uh, change the way they do business. Really? I mean, to be honest, I look at these larger companies and I think, wow, I'm going to bet against them. Oh, I would definitely not bet against Bank of America or Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, Royal Dutch Shell is killing it. Or Enel in the utility business. I mean, this is the largest utility in the free world. An incredibly successful organization. Okay, but it's not just companies that are using the data and technology in novel ways. This is a priority for the military as well. And, of course, it brings up some of the geopolitical issues that have been at the fore recently and about how AI is becoming militarized and the great power rivalry between America and China. Well, I think you're raising a critically important point. I think that we are at war with China today and the front of this war is in cyberspace and it's about AI. As Vladimir Putin said in 2017, whoever wins the war on AI dominates the world Um, and it's not going to be Russia. Okay, so now China is spending, say, $20 billion a year today to innovate in AI for defense purposes and I think what we see here is a battle of two underlying political philosophies. Uh, In in China, we have a top-down totalitarian state that is driven by a planned economy as mandated by the 13th Five-Year Plan. And in the United States, we have this very messy free market economy where, you know, inventions are being made and AI inventions are coming from garages in Palo Alto and storefronts in the Bronx. And so it'll be interesting to see which system wins, but this is not a a war that we want to lose. Are you sure this is a war? Doesn't that very language and metaphor actually create bigger problems for us? The Chinese and the Russians are penetrating the U.S. grid infrastructure every day and peppering it with viruses where they have the ability to turn off the grid whenever they want. Um, The Chinese have uh, penetrated the United States government and taken 21 million personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management, including every individual who has ever applied for or been granted a security clearance. Now, if this is not war, what is it? So what's the response? In the United States and in Western Europe, I think we dramatically underestimate the need for cybersecurity. I believe there are bad actors who could turn off the grid in Western Europe and could turn off the grid in the United States at will. I mean, this needs to get to the top of the political agenda. And this issue of cybersecurity needs to be taken very seriously and people need to be aware of it as it relates to securing financial systems, securing news systems, securing um, power grid systems. How about fake news? I mean, if this is not war, what is it? Now, trying to harden, say, the digital platforms against the vulnerabilities because of fake news, that's kind of happening from European antitrust regulators more than it is happening from public policy in America. Do you look to the European regulators and technology and think that they're doing the right thing? Or do you think actually this might stifle innovation? Or you, do you have a heavy heart when you see their activism? Oh, this is a great question. And I have 
you know, on a personal note, kind of very little use for government and very little use for regulation. That being said, I think that as it relates to cybersecurity and security of personal information, I believe this threatens our ability to conduct a democracy. And so I think this is a place where the governments are going to have to regulate. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I believe that Europe is in the lead on this and they're doing the right thing. I believe that GDPR is a good first step. It is only a first step. Um, I think what's happening in social media is nothing short of nefarious. I think the social media companies are at best looking the other way. Uh, they know exactly what's going on and this needs to be addressed. What you've just laid out seems very dystopian. What's the solution? You're an entrepreneur. You're in the business of coming up with solutions. Well, I think that leading companies and leading CEOs are using AI to change the way they manufacture products, design products, deliver products, and service customers. Okay, and they are going to be the next generation of winners. This generation of technology is a step function increase in power uh, and effectiveness, and companies who adopt these technologies successfully will survive and thrive, and those who don't will be acquired by those who do. Tom, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, regular Babbage listeners know that we often give away a book on the show to the listener who answers one of our questions with insight and aplomb. This week, we're giving away Tom Siebel's book, Digital Transformation. The question is this. Today, we talk of digital transformations of companies and organizations going from analog to computer or internet-based. But what of earlier eras who had to make the electrical transformation or the mechanical transformation or the printing press or the pulley transformation? So we ask, name the company or institution in society that failed to make that shift. That is to say, who was the BlackBerry or the Kodak or the Blockbuster video of their day in another era, not the digital one? Send your one answer and a reason why you chose it to radio at economist.com and our team of complete non-specialists and dilettantes, that is to say me, will choose the most interesting response as the winner. Good luck. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And finally, science has often been accused of being a male-dominated profession. And that bias, it turns out, is not just reflected in its practitioners, but also in its subjects. A team of researchers at the Natural History Museum in London, where I am right now, in the grand archway underneath a massive blue whale, they have carried out a review of the animal specimens in five natural history collections across the world, including their own. They found that among the birds and mammals, at least, you're more likely to be looking at cocks, stags, and drakes, over hens, hinds, and ducks. I'm here to visit the head researcher, Natalie Cooper. Natalie, how are you doing? Uh, good, thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic, and this is amazing. What a beautiful hall. 
Oh, it really is. Maybe you can show me some of the birds that you've been looking at. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so I'm at the Noisy Bird Corridor at the Natural History Museum. And before we get started, Natalie, tell me, what is it that I'm looking at? So we're currently looking at the case which has a diversity of birds in it. So probably the biggest thing in here is the ostrich. And it's a nice male ostrich with uh, beautiful plumage. There's also flamingos. There's an emperor penguin. There are some bustards. There's a sun bittern, which is displaying, which looks really cool. Um, and tons of other birds in here as well. So do you have any sense of what percentage of uh, the birds that we're looking at right now in the case are male or female? Oh, it's really, really hard with birds. So um, the easiest way of doing it is looking at their plumage, so looking at their feather patterns. But in birds where they look pretty similar, it can be almost impossible even for experts. That's fascinating, but we'll make that a topic for another interview. Now, your research has found that many of the specimens tend to lean towards the male, not the female. Explain what you found and how did you come up with the idea of even performing that experiment? Um, it basically came from an idea of thinking about people working in STEM, so science, technology, engineering and maths disciplines, and realizing that the majority of those were male. And so we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see if that is the same with the specimens in our museum collections? So we had a look at both birds and mammals. So we have about um, 2.5 million specimens in this study. And we found that for birds, at least about 40% of those are female and 60% are male, which is quite a big skew given that in the wild it's about 50-50. It's not so bad in mammals. In mammals it's about 48% uh, female and 52% male, but it varies a lot depending on the group that you're looking at. Wow. So what explains the difference in the diversity of what you've collected? So we think um, there's probably a mixture of reasons. So some of them might be just by accident. So it might be that males are more likely to get caught. Uh, it might be that males are less scared of trapping and things like that. And so they come closer to hunters and they get caught that way. But it might also be a deliberate selection for the pretty males in um, uh, birds, for example. So birds, often the males are the beautiful ones. And in mammals, it might be that we're choosing to get the biggest, the fiercest, and the ones with the kind of biggest and prettiest horns. Um, and antlers and things like that. What's the impact of that in terms of the research that we've performed on these animals so as to understand how they live, how they act? Is there any implication for this in terms of how we understand these creatures? The diversity of life on Earth is really a lot of it understood by what we see in museum collections. So if we're mostly looking at males and we're not looking at females, we're kind of missing half the diversity of life. Um, in addition, there's some really important things which vary between males and females. So you might find that males and females have different like, levels of parasites or they might have different immune levels. Um, you also find differences in sort of toxicology. So female birds, for example, can get rid of mercury through eggs, but males can't do that. And so if we're only looking at males, or in fact, if we're only looking at females, then we're getting a really skewed idea of what's going on in the natural world. Some people might think that the reason why we have so many male specimens is because we've got so many male scientists. But others would say, actually, no, that's ridiculous. They probably, if they're making a collection, a male might not actually prefer a male species. Does your research or any of the other research that you've seen lead to an answer on this? So, interestingly... 
people don't do this consciously, um, but we all, males and females, have an unconscious bias towards males. And so it's quite likely that that has been the case, um, not necessarily in terms of specimens collected, but in terms of thinking about interesting questions to ask with specimens and also thinking about uh, sort of the way that sex plays out in the natural world. So we're finding that as we get more and more female scientists working on these questions, we're actually opening up a whole new world of things that are going on in female animals. Wow. Natalie, this is so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this edition of Babbage. But while you're still with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.